The scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for the reading, uh, Joyce, and thanks for the prayer, Sam. Uh, not bad for the first time, okay? <laughs> Got a chuckle out of him, okay? So uh, last week, we began a, a new series uh, in order to recast our vision, mission, and core values after having to live through... COVID for the past three years. <clears throat> and as we continue our series today, I wanted us to take a moment to uh, recite together our vision and mission statements, because I'm assuming you took some time to memorize them, right? Yeah, all of you. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I have a cheat sheet, okay? So let me, let's show the slides. All right, so uh, I know that you're not familiar yet with them, so let's uh, recite this together as we read our vision statement first. So what is our vision, uh, Cornerstone members? Our ultimate desire or our vision, altogether one voice, is to see people from all nations love and serve Christ through a life transformed by the gospel, okay? So I just want to highlight once again from all nations, right? Not just from East Asia, but from all nations, right? To love and serve Christ, right? Not, not to love and serve our own 
self-constructed idols, but Christ, right? Through a life transformed by the gospel, right? So transformation is very important for us. You know, we can say, uh, come as you are, but like I said last week, don't stay as you are, right? Come to Christ expecting that your lives are to change for the better, right? To better reflect his beauty and his goodness as you mature in your faith and character, right? That is the vision we have. Uh, what is our mission? Did I show, show them this slide? What is our mission? All together, one voice. Our mission is to raise up mature and equipped disciples who are committed to faithfully building their lives upon the foundation of Christ, right? That is our mission, to raise up mature and equipped disciples Right? Not, not to raise up a uh, spoiled and whiny generation who are always complaining about something in life. No, but a mature and equipped disciple who are committed to faithfully building their lives upon the sure foundation of Christ. Isn't that what you want to build your life upon? Something sure and lasting? Right? Not upon a flimsy foundation of secular ideology or, or worldly politics, but upon Christ who will never disappoint you, who is the source of all truth. That is our mission. Now, today we're going to unpack our first core value, but uh, let me once again first clarify what core values are and why they're important, okay? Core values are not meant to simply be good ideas or opinions we share among ourselves, Rather, core values are meant to be these deeply held convictions we have that that faithfully reflect who we are and what we continue to aspire to be, right? They represent what we most value and what we're most passionate about. This means, brothers and sisters, that we should never allow our core values to simply be something we put on paper, right? Something that we simply state, something that is actually never lived out, right? We don't want to In other words, claim that we're missional on paper while never making any effort to share the gospel in word and deed and and actually live a missional life. We want our core values to to be our actual values, values we faithfully embody each week because we're convinced that they give glory and honor to God. That is what we mean by core value. So with that said, let me introduce to you what our first core value is. Our first, first core value is to be Christ-centered. We want to be a Christ-centered community. Now, left alone, that can mean anything people want it to mean, and I know that many of you have heard that expression way too many times. Everyone uses this expression of Christ-centeredness. And so I'd like to take uh, a few minutes this morning to add some definition to this. So what do we mean by Christ-centered? Well, let me first tell you what we don't mean by it, all right? I think this will help clarify what it is we're pursuing here. By Christ-centered, we don't mean that all we talk about here at Cornerstone is Jesus, okay? We don't mean that. You know, uh, when I was in seminary many years ago, that's actually when the expression of being Christ-centered had become very popular. It was a very trendy thing, actually. Uh, And I think it was partly because of Tim Keller's influence among younger pastors. 
Everyone, no joke, wanted to be Christ-centered something. <laughs> you know, Christ-centered preaching was popularized, Christ-centered marriage, Christ-centered family, Christ-centered counseling. This thing was attached to everything, virtually. And it was a good thing for the most part, but, you know, one of my professors, after observing this movement that was happening in front of us, he offered a necessary critique of this movement, saying, you know what, to be Christocentric, that's sort of the language our professors like to use, to be Christocentric is a good thing for the most part, but let's not be Christomonistic. In other words, he was saying, don't forget that we're called to love and worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just Jesus, but there are other two members of the Trinity as well. Let's not neglect these things. That was one of his encouragements to us. And we're also reminded as seminarians that Jesus said that we are called to make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also teaching them, it says, teaching them to obey just a portion of Scripture. No, all that he has commanded us, right? And that's why to be Christ-centered cannot mean that we refuse to speak about anything other than Christ. So then what does it mean? What does it mean? And I'm going to answer in three points this morning, okay? And here's the basic outline. Part one, we're to be Christ-centered in how we interpret God's Word, okay? There's a Christ-centered lens through which we need to interpret God's Word. That was a Luke 24 passage that our sister Joyce read for us, okay? Part two, we are to be Christ-centered in how we interpret all of history. Okay, that's the Colossians 1 passage that was read for us. And part three, we are to be Christ-centered in how we personally live out our faith. And that's the Colossians chapter 3 passage that was read for us, okay? So I'm going to follow this outline this morning. Part one, we are to be Christ-centered in how we interpret God's word. This is one of the first things that I was taught in seminary, uh, because if you think about it, there are not many things in life more important than rightly handling the Word of God. You know, can you think of anything more important than that? Let me know if anything comes to mind, because I really can't think of many other things more important than rightly handling the Word of God. And that, that is why uh, in the Gospel of Luke we see it was also the very first thing that Jesus taught to his disciples when he appeared to them after his resurrection. Okay. It's the first thing he taught. Verse 44, then he said to them, see, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms, that was his way of summarizing, basically covering the entire Old Testament, which was scripture back then for them. And verse 45, then, this is very important, our, our seminary professors made a huge deal out of this, rightly so. Then he opened their minds, minds, right? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There was this sort of 
mind-opening that was happening. It's a pretty amazing passage because, see, these Jewish disciples knew their Bibles, we would say, very well. I mean, from a human just vantage point, they knew their Bibles better than we know our Bibles. I mean, they definitely would have memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament. And yet, Jesus implies that although they read their Bible, although they memorized large portions of it, they didn't truly know what it was about until Jesus opened their minds. Only until then, only when that happened, they they could understand how the Bible was mainly about Jesus, his suffering, death, and resurrection, and how through him we can have life, that all the scripture was a testify of this reality. You see, the Bible can seem very complicated at times. And it definitely, I'm not saying it's, it's not complex. After all, it, it consists of 66 books, right, written over many centuries by multiple authors. There are multiple genres to deal with. You have to understand how to read and interpret these different genres. There are hundred different stories and multiple points and subpoints that can be drawn from each of these stories as well. But see, Jesus is saying that despite the Bible's complexity, there is also a simplicity to it because it only really has one main storyline that centers upon him. There's a saying that goes like this that I found very helpful. Uh, The Old Testament, some of you may think that the Old Testament is just very different than the New Testament. No. The Old Testament and New Testament, there's a harmony to it. Okay? They're not like competing against each other, right? The Old Testament's not about an angry God. The New Testament's not about a merciful God, okay? There is a consistency to it. See, the Old Testament, the saying goes, is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and both are written to testify of who Jesus is, ultimately, and what he has done for us. I found this to be very helpful to uh, just know a simple outline of the Bible, and I I often teach this uh, even in our membership class. Uh, One common way I teach it is by using four categories, okay? For those of you who recently attended the membership class, you'll know, right? What are the four categories? Number one is creation, chapter one, right? Chapter two is the fall, Chapter three is redemption, and chapter four is glory, right? These four categories are very helpful because essentially it outlines the Bible for us, right? God creates, we destroy, Jesus saves, and God will one day perfect all things when he comes in glory. That is the flow of Scripture. That's also basically the summary of the gospel. It's the main storyline of Scripture. And so if you miss this, then guess what? Jesus is saying, you miss the whole point of the Bible. See, there's a simplicity to the gospel, but it's not simplistic. It's simple yet profound. Though it could be understood by a child, and that's why you should teach your children the gospel, but it can also take us the rest of our lives to unpack and study. There's a profundity to it. That's why it's been said that the gospel is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Isn't that a helpful image? 
So in all we do and in all we say, whether we're speaking to a child or a full-grown adult, see, we never want to forget what the main storyline of the Bible is. Because if we do, we miss the whole point of what God is trying to communicate to us. Don't forget that. But being Christ-centered doesn't only mean that we're to keep the gospel at the forefront or at the center of our preaching or teaching. It also means, brothers and sisters, that we are not going to preach, I am not going to preach or teach what only you want to hear all the time. See, because for us, to be Christ-centered means that we're making a deliberate choice not to be man-centered, not to be you-centered or me-centered. It means that we don't choose passages or interpret passages in a way that would simply please us and make us feel good about ourselves. Many years ago, there was a young pastor who became very popular because he was hip and pretty cool and slick and he knew how to use, you know, YouTube and produce these sort of like really uh, attractive videos. Uh, actually, I was, was pre-YouTube days, I believe, and uh, he actually created these DVDs. And so I know, know a lot of even conservative pastors who utilize these DVDs to, you know, open up discussions and conversations with their college students and such. But he became very popular uh, over time. Oprah Winfrey even invited him onto her show and endorsed him. And that, that's sort of the red flag, right? Whenever Oprah endorses someone, like religious, that's when you got to know, okay, something wrong with this guy. Uh, but you know, let me give you one example. He, he took the, the passage of Jesus walking on water. Remember that, that story? The, the disciples, they see Jesus walking on water, and then Peter... Uh, he, decide, he decides he wants to walk on water too, and he, he starts attempting to walk, and then he sinks, and then Jesus says to him, you have little faith, <laughs> why did you doubt? <clears throat> you have little faith, why did you doubt? And this, uh, this young pastor who became popular back in the day, uh, he basically taught, using that path, he taught that Jesus is saying to us, he was saying to Peter that Peter should not have doubted himself, that Peter should have had more faith in his own ability to do the impossible. Why do you doubt, Christian? Why do you doubt yourself, right? Have more faith in yourself. That became the message. And so all of a sudden, a passage that was always interpreted to mean that we are called to place our trust in Jesus was made to mean the complete opposite, <laughs> The word of God, which is meant to exalt Christ, was all of a sudden used to exalt man. It was disgusting. <laughs> but many Christians fell for it. So I had to remind even some of our early members the main storyline of the Bible and the main point of Scripture once again. You know, when I was interviewing, uh, so 2008 was my, my year of sort of like soul-searching and uh, reaffirming my call as a pastor. So I was like, you know, should, should, I, should I quit ministry? Should I continue? And then, you know, God convicted me to continue. And so I was searching for different, different calls and visiting different churches and seeing, you know, what the needs were. And so there was one church that required, I, I noticed, 
its future pastor to preach uplifting messages on Sundays. That's, that's what they put out as, as part of their future pastor's job description. Right? This, this you know, pastor had to preach uplifting messages, and I, I didn't even bother to apply for that position since I knew that I would be immediately butting heads with the leadership there. Why? Because, see, we shouldn't expect God's word to always give us this uplifting experience, at least not every time we hear it, because sometimes, I hope you realize this, but God's word is going to come to us in the form of strong, a strong disagreement uh, or a firm correction, sometimes in the form of a harsh rebuke and even a stern warning to all of us. You see, man-centered messages are designed to always tickle our ears and offer this uplifting experience. In contrast, Christ-centered messages are designed to primarily exalt Christ and to reveal how bankrupt we are spiritually, that we may turn to him, that we may run to him and find our joy and security in him once again, you see. That's a big difference. That's a huge difference in perspective. You know, one pastor put it this way. This is worthy of reflection, okay? If, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Think about that. Does your God ever disagree with you? Or does he always just pat you on your back saying, oh, yes, you're right. You're right once again. Good job. <laughs> You always be doing the right things. He never disagrees with you. And what God have you constructed in your mind, you see? What God have you conjured up? That is nothing but an idol, brothers and sisters. Part two, we're Christ-centered in how we interpret history. In Colossians 1, we're told how Jesus has been given a special place of authority over all of creation, let me read a portion of it once again. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things, all things, everything. Not just things related to believers, but also to unbelievers. All things were created through him and for him, you see. All things were created for him. Don't forget that. He is preeminent over all things. So what this means is that Jesus is not only the main character of the Bible, he's also the main character of all of human history. Everything was created through him and for him. And so apart from him, you cannot know what the true purpose of history is. This is true, again, not only for believers, but for unbelievers as well, because Jesus is meant to be preeminent over not just his church, but the whole world. He is Lord of all, King of all kings. But what's most comforting to me in this passage is the fact that it says in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him, check this out, all things hold together. All things hold together. That idea is very comforting because as you, as you, most of you probably felt, all things seem to be falling apart around us. <laughs> all, thing, all things seem to be just 
always breaking down. Like, why, why does the world seem to be falling apart every day, every week, every month, every year? But we're reminded that he is before all things, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. So I'm comforted by this because it tells me that there is nothing more powerful than Jesus, and he holds all things together. That means that no matter how hard life may be at times, no matter how many things may torment your soul, no matter how many worries you may have that keep you up at night, brothers and sisters, you can rest in the knowledge that Jesus, he sits on his throne, and all things are under his control. Nothing surprises him because he holds all things together. And he perfectly fulfills all things according to his wise counsel and sovereign purposes. Amen? As we get older, there is so much more hardship that we're going to experience. And I tell you, the only way that I know how to endure these hardships is by knowing that in the midst of all of my troubles, Jesus still, he sits on his Throne. Because when I know right, that he has everything under control, that he promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him, I can have genuine peace. That gives me comfort. And I'm not saying that that's all you need to know to get through life, but see, that's a foundational truth and a reality that will anchor your soul and give you peace when you need it the most. God is still on his throne. When 9-11 happened many, many years ago, I was in my seminary dorm room, right, watching on TV. And uh, see, <clears throat> you would think that all these seminarians who all they do is study the Bible, <laughs> that they would, they would, you know, be kind of cool and just calm. But no, they, they were like getting really concerned and they were surprised and some of them were emotionally, like, deeply troubled because that was their home. Like, New York, Jersey was their home, and they were really disturbed. You know, but one thing that helped most of us regain perspective was hearing from our seminary president and other professors on campus that, you know, they were, they were reminding us, like, despite the chaos, we're not minimizing the chaos, we're not minimizing the tragedy, but despite the chaos and tragedy, to just to, to know that God that he is still on his throne in the midst of it all. And that helped us regain perspective. Some of you also remember, several years ago, there was a couple who had lost their four-month-old in an accident, and it was absolutely heartbreaking for the whole church. It was especially hard for the mom, as you can imagine, but see, her testimony was clear. I remember her saying that the only thing that truly gave her comfort was knowing that God was ultimately in control, that all things were held together by his hand. You see how practical this truth is? Do you see how important it is to interpret history through a proper Christ-centered lens? Brothers, sisters, one of the biggest lies of our postmodern culture is that there are these unlimited perspectives, that these unlimited stories or 
the common term that's used is narratives. There are unlimited narratives that are equally valid, equally legitimate. For example, if you believe in the story of two men marrying and living happily ever after, that's a valid, legitimate, good story, just like there are other stories in life. Or if you believe in the story of little Johnny wanting to become like Jane, and see, that's a good story too, and just as valid as any other story you hear. And if you buy into that mindset, see, you're, you're being sold a lie. The biggest flaw of postmodern thinking is the arrogant denial that there is a main storyline to history, a meta-narrative that's been revealed to us by God himself, which is meant to give universal meaning and purpose to our existence and to everything else that we know in life because all things are held together by him. If you deny that, then you are lost. But that's what postmodernism wants us to do. It wants us to reject this main storyline. History, brothers and sisters, is not circular, as most secular historians would love to claim. History is a line. It's linear. There's a distinct beginning, middle, and end to it. And it climaxes. The story climaxes with Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished for us. And because Jesus is Lord and King over all of history, that means that every person, both believer and unbeliever, will need to answer to him one day and be held accountable for what they've chosen to do with their lives. Very important implication there. Part three, we're to be Christ-centered in how we personally live out our faith. In Colossians 3, we read, if then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above if you've been raised, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Is that how you view yourself? I mean, this speaks of our union with Christ, that by faith we have been made one with him. So we are raised with him, not because we deserve it, but because what's Christ becomes ours by the gift of his amazing grace. It also says that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. This is such good news because that means that all of our ugliness, all of our unworthiness, all the things that make us cringe about ourselves, all the things that we're shameful of, all of our flaws and our blemishes are hidden in Christ. He absorbs it all himself. He takes upon the condemnation that was supposed to fall upon our heads so that when God sees us, instead of seeing this life of sin, he sees beauty, he sees goodness, he sees glory that Christ clothes us with. There's an amazing transfer that takes place. All of Christ becomes ours. All of our ugliness, he takes it upon himself and pays a penalty for us. 
Right? That must become your primary, most central identity as a Christian so that you can boldly declare the words, I have been crucified. I died with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Is that how you view yourself? It should be. So practically speaking, this means that our past, your past, right, your broken past, I don't care how broken your past has become. I know many of you come from deeply broken families. You're wounded. I get it. Again, I don't want to diminish it. But despite your brokenness, your past does not have to define your future. Right? To know that we've messed up big time or that we've grown up in a messed up environment, right? it shouldn't determine who we are now and what our future holds because of what Christ has done for us and what he has secured for us. Because of his mercy, we now receive everything. All of his becomes ours. So stand with great confidence. Push forward. Trust in him. To be Christ-centered in our lives also means that, see, we're not to make our sexuality as, as so common in our day. It means that we're not to make our gender, our economic status, our ethnicity, our skin color. We're not to make these things our primary identity markers. These things mean something, but these things need to be interpreted through a primary lens, a Christ-centered one, because it's Christ who ultimately defines who we are, and it's by him that all these other secondary things are given its proper place Meaning and purpose, you see. You can't, you can't redefine these things. Right? He, he tells us how to use them. He tells us what they are. Let me offer you one analogy before I close. I think this will help you consider practically what this may mean for you, that, that Christ is central in your life. See, most of you are very good about making your homes look very warm and pleasant. I mean, I've, I've visited a good number of them, so I know you have good taste, okay? And I think because of the you know, HGTV and all that's available, like, you guys know how to sort of, you know, keep things organized and, and neat, you know? Uh, I think most of you would agree, but a well-thought-out living space normally has some kind of centerpiece, right? Whether it be a stone-covered fireplace like like my home, or maybe it's a nice table that you invested in. Maybe it's some kind of antique display. Maybe it's a grand piano that you place somewhere in your living space. But there's a, a main focal point in the room. But once you determine what that is, whatever it may be, what happens next is that everything around it sort of gets rearranged. Everything else around it gets modified, right? Maybe the colors of the wall have to change so that there's some coordination. Maybe the shape or the texture of all the other furnishings in the room sort of get changed as well to highlight, right, to highlight the main feature of the room. And so that, that's what it's like to have Christ 
as the centerpiece of your life, okay? Everything else gets rearranged based on who Christ is. If you wrongly def define something in your life, once Christ enters in, he, he gives it its proper definition and meaning and purpose, you see. Everything else gets rearranged based on who he is and what he says to be true. This means that we cannot live any way we want to anymore. Jesus makes such a huge difference. You know, when you become a Christian, it, it, it may feel like he's intruding in your space, you see. It's like, oh my goodness, he, he completely entered in my life, and now look, he's, he's ruining everything. No, he is making your life more beautiful the way it was designed to be. And it may be painful at times for you, right? as he's kind of restructuring. He's doing like major heart surgery, and he's kind of restructuring, reordering your life, but that's part of what it means to become a mature and equipped disciple. That's what it means to build your life upon the foundation of Christ. That's what we're about as a ministry. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not only the main character of the Bible. He's not only the main character of all of history, but he's also meant to be the main character in your personal lives as well. Please don't forget that. That is what we mean by Christ-centered, and it's a deeply held conviction we all ought to have. Amen? So then may our lives be consistent with what we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. And may we joyfully submit to the one who sits on the throne of our lives for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark about who the main character in your story is. This year, our hope is to be more Christ-centered in our living, recognizing Christ to be the most important person in all of history. So by your grace, help us to see how we ought to rearrange our thoughts and our priorities and our relationships, our work, our spending, our leisure, our everything, in order to better honor you as a centerpiece and cornerstone of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So I'll stand together and give praise to God.